Around 1900, the Viennese upper and middle classes lived and breathed high culture to an extent that most of us can hardly imagine. This exhibition pays homage to the cultural saturation that made Vienna what it was. The artists knew that their culture in 1900 had long since gone over the top. What made to us seem their excess of visual references was to them an attempt to move beyond an even greater excess of historical references in buildings like this. The artists saw this excerpt excess in the historicist buildings of the architecture, and historicism, defined as a preference for period styles, produced a visual culture more saturated than almost anything in our exhibition. And here we have a secession facade yet again. I shall use this facade later to illustrate what I mean by climptifying, because the golden motifs have been transferred to the facade of the NGV International. That's climptifying. <laughs> the architect of the secession building of 1903, Josef Maria Albrich, coined an anti-historicist maxim which can serve as a precept for understanding these artists. He wrote, let the artist show his world what never has been and never will be. Seine Welt zeige der Künstler, was nie war, noch jemals sein wird. Let the artist show his world what never has been and never will be. In other words, the artist should depict an alternative universe, an alternative to our everyday one. Our exhibition presents not one, but many such alternative universes. Now here we have the Fritz Riedler portrait again, one of the stellar works in the show. It is dated 1906, it was exhibited in 1907, and after more work was finally displayed in Vienna in 1908. I shall use the image to demonstrate what is meant by the process of klimptifying. The supreme master of alternative universes in our show was, of course, Gustav Klimt. One of his contemporary admirers, the Hungarian critic Ludwig Hevesy coined a new verb out of Klimt's name. Hevesy spoke of klimptifying, klimptisieren, man klimptisiert. By this term, Hevesy meant that Klimt transferred motifs between individual works of art, borrowing, for example, patterns of fabrics from designs of his friend Josef Hoffmann, as we see in this portrait. The upholstery of the sofa is a Hoffmann motif. So is the wall decoration. And here we have the artist showing what never was nor will be. Now here comes the main point. Because neither Klimt nor Hoffmann presumed to own their motivic inventions, they could exchange visual discoveries with each other. Hoffmann created this, oops, this brooch 
which you see on the left, from the motif in the Fritz and Riedler portrait. And Hoffman too Klimptified. And I suppose I could have said that Klimt Hoffmanized in this portrait. <laughs> Here, moreover, next to Fritz's knee, the center of the portrait, for some reason this isn't working. There it is, right there. That's another brooch. That's a Hoffman brooch tucked into the painting as an afterthought in the late stages. Masters of the Vienna Secession climptified whenever they multiplied one pattern in diverse settings. In this portrait, Klimt borrowed both from himself and from Hoffmann when he added the tiny squares. I don't know if you can see them, these tiny squares. They're outlined in black and ultramarine. They're added in late stages of the painting. It's even possible that Emily Flurge added some of them. He allowed her to do that to these portraits. And they are, of course, miniatures of the Wiener Werkstätte square. To klimptify means to borrow motifs far and wide, to recycle them in imaginative ways, and then to recycle the recyclings. Klimt and Hoffmann functioned in a feedback loop that circled back and forth between their works. For two or more artists, to engage in such a feedback loop is one of their great inventions and one of the highlights of our show. But it goes further. The critic Hevesy gives us a word to describe what the designers of our show have done. Our designers have climptified when they reproduced motifs of the secession building on the facade of the NGV International, or when they reproduce Wiener Werkstätte black and white motifs on the doors of the exhibition or when a psychedelic rainbow textile design by Dagobert Peche is painted onto an entire wall in the last room. Needless to say, the exhibition shop has climptified <laughs> in its reproductions of designs from Vienna 1900. You can buy a Wiener Werkstätte coffee service, you can buy a bib for your grandchild, or you can buy a Wiener Werkstätte coat for your Dachshund. <laughs> Today, we take commercial climptifying for granted. Klimt and Hoffmann, in effect, invented our postmodern practice of borrowing design motifs from great artists and putting them in our homes or onto our clothing. What we call branding is a form of climptifying. And when you buy something from the exhibition shop, you too will be buying into the ethos of climptifying. As we savor our complicity in climptifying, let me point out how the German word applied art, angewandte Kunst, differs from the French and English word decorative art, art décoratif. English language museums in Australia and North America have adopted the French usage in departments of decorative arts, while Dutch, German, and Hungarians adopt the German usage of having museums of applied arts, as in this view of the interior courtyard of the Museum of Applied Art in Vienna, one of the great works of the Ringstrasse. The conceptual difference matters 
because the adjective decorative implies a different status, often a lower status, while the adjective applied implies a different function, but not necessarily a lower one. Decorative art presupposes something pre-existing to decorate, while applied art presupposes something pre-existing to put to a new use. Decorative art adorns, applied art refocuses. One of the aspirations of the artists in our show was to diminish or abolish any distinction between high art and applied art. An instigator of this aspiration was the German artist Max Klinger, who in an article, Painting and Drawing of 1891, advocated nothing less than a merger of all the visual arts. For this fusion of high art and applied art, Klinger adopted the term made famous by the composer Richard Wagner, total work of art, or Gesamt Kunstwerk. The German painter, sculptor, and printmaker Max Klinger remains pivotal for our exhibition because it was for the exhibition of the Klinger Beethoven, shown here, that Klimt painted the so-called Beethoven frieze. Reportedly, Klimt based his imagery in the frieze on Richard Wagner's interpretation, written in the 1840s, of the fourth movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, 1824. Here, Klimt's golden knight evokes a Parsifal figure leading others towards salvation, the salvation of art. Klimt's reliance on Richard Wagner, the inventor of the concept of Gesamtkunstwerk, connects to Max Klinger's concept of the visual arts focusing high art and applied art in a Wagnerian way. The frieze might also be nicknamed the Klinger frieze because one purpose of the total work of art in the Secession exhibition was to make all the works displayed, whether Klimt's paintings or Hoffmann's objects, into examples of applied art. As Klinger had advocated, the exhibition space itself became a work of applied art. I hope you will feel this to be true of our show. Our show itself can be seen as a gigantic work of applied art. When Klimt put frames designed by the Wiener Werkstätte around his portraits, and I urge you to look at the frames, especially the one on the large Klimt drawing from 1905 in the fourth room, and then hung them in the secession building, the portraits, too, could be seen as works of applied art. It's less easy to make the segue from high art to applied art if one speaks instead of decorative art. The German word facilitates the elevation of applied art to parity with high art, while the English word does not. Here, the dining room in Hoffmann's Palais Stocklet in Brussels, with Klimt's mosaics on the walls, epitomizes the conception that all art becomes applied art, all the details get subordinated to an overarching purpose. And this Klimtifying then includes a willingness for artists to exchange motifs in a feedback loop, but also to subordinate their works to a larger concept. 
What then can I say from the perspective of my career as an historian who has written about these creative giants? I would offer this as a fundamental precept. Vienna 1900 pioneered not just by innovating in the visual arts, music, and sciences, particularly medicine and physics, but also in striving for collaboration between the two perspectives of art and science. The fusion of art and science into a third way, what the historian Peter Weibel has called a third culture, gained momentum in Vienna before World War I and took off during the 1920s. Here again, the Majolica House of Otto Wagner in the facade. We see the interaction between art and science in the miniaturized engineering feats of the Wiener Werkstätte and in Otto Wagner's use of new materials. Objects designed by the Wiener Werkstätte attract us, not just because they are one of a kind, but because they are products of technological ingenuity. Their makers were engineers in miniature, doing on a tiny scale what Otto Wagner did on a huge scale. Designers of the Wiener Werkstätte climptified not just between genres and between materials, but between large and small scales. This is the interior of Freud's consulting room with all the art on the walls. Freud's patients lay down on this couch amid the cultural saturation embodied in many works of art. In order to contextualize the notion of climptifying, I want to introduce two other concepts, that of strenuousness and that of essayism. Vienna abounded in geniuses who were hyperactive, who never shut their minds off. Examples who come to mind are Sigmund Freud, Ludwig Wittgenstein, son of the man who paid for the secession building, and Robert Musil. And among artists in our show, Arnold Schoenberg and Adolf Loos. This image shows cultural saturation as it confronted Freud's clients in his consulting room. Can you imagine lying down for 50 minutes of psychoanalysis amid all this art? And Freud himself sat over here, out of sight, but he could look across at his collection of antiquities while the patient was talking. Is that interesting? No, it can be argued that our show features too many perspectives and too many geniuses to be easily absorbed. In so doing, the show embodies the cultural ideal of strenuousness, of never slackening one's cultural appetite. As Wolfgang has said, the show needs to be visited time and again, and each time we need to make a fresh start at understanding the assumptions of these creators, because making a fresh start is what they kept doing. That's what's meant by strenuousness. Two self-portraits by Arnold Schoenberg. The imperative to start afresh from ground zero is celebrated most forcefully by the composer Arnold Schoenberg. Schoenberg taught composition and music theory for 45 years. He urged that a composer start anew on each piece. He dismissed the notion that past repertory can suffice to carry a composer through into a new future. Instead, Schoenberg insisted that each new piece must begin from scratch and should not imitate preceding works, whether one's own or someone else's. 
To show you the ethos of strenuousness at work, let me recite the activity of Arnold Schoenberg in one year, 1910. That summer, he painted 40 self-portraits. Two of them, positively hallucinatory, are shown here. He also painted the portrait of his pupil, Alban Berg, which is in our show, and which at the bottom you can see is slightly unfinished. The works were displayed in an exhibition in the autumn of 1910. During the same months, Schoenberg was writing his highly original treatise on harmony, published in 1911, and he was scoring part three of the Gurr Lieder. In other words, in the one year, he was highly active in painting, writing, and composing, and was developing radically new approaches in each one. Not many creators in the entire history of culture can make such a claim. This strenuous mode of creativity has a parallel in the work of the novelist Robert Musil, who practiced what has been called essayism. For Musil, no issue was ever settled, no analysis ever definitive, no conclusions ever decisive. Instead, his thinking abided in permanent liminality, suspended in expectation of yet another bout of theorizing. He demonstrates this incessant rethinking in his essayistic novel, The Man Without Qualities, published 1930, 1943, whose 2,000-odd pages remain incomplete and perhaps uncompletable. One could speak of Musil's essayism as a kind of klimptifying in prose. In it, the author transferred insights between disciplines with the same abandon as Klimt and Hoffmann transferred motifs between visual media. Freud, too, klimptified when he applied psychoanalysis to Michelangelo's Statue of Moses or Leonardo's painting The Virgin of the Rocks. If we define klimptifying as eagerness to apply concepts to problems outside their field of origin, then klimptifying may be said to constitute a response by Viennese creators to the cultural saturation that surrounded them. Like Klimt and Hoffmann, the thinkers too moved effortlessly between disciplines that we regard as utterly separate. This is an image from the, sorry, from the 1986 show, Traum und Wirklichkeit. I obtained the catalog from a former voluntary guide at the NGV, Jasmine Brunner, who's here today. And she rejoices, as we all do, that our show has equaled, or I think some would say surpassed, the 1986 show. In particular, our exhibition benefits from a much larger space, which suits the objects better, as you can see from this overcrowded, saturated display. And interestingly, you can see in the lower corner, that's the coffee set, which has been climptified and which you can buy for your own use, right there. <laughs> In conclusion, I advocate that as visitors, we adopt an ethos of strenuousness as one among many options in approaching this show. Each time we visit, we can try to behold it with fresh eyes. That is the way the Vienna modernists, like Schoenberg, Krauss, Loos, and Musil, would have wanted us to approach this homage to them. Do not take anything for granted. Be prepared to look at everything a second and third time and single out for comparison fresh pairs of objects on each visit. 
This show should keep our minds turning over. That is the message of the great thinkers of Viennese modernism. Finally, let me offer a couple of aphorisms. Viennese authors like Hofmannsthal, Schnitzler, and Krauss excelled as aphorists. The briefest possible introduction to this period comes from these two aphorisms. The ambrosia of earlier ages becomes the daily bread of later ones. In other words, what may have seemed heavenly when first created has become our daily diet. We have climptified what was once unheard of and made it our daily bread or our daily Zachertorte. <laughs> and then, once more from Albrecht, let the artist show to his world what never has been and never will be. These artists strove to envision alternative universes of the kind that this exhibition offers in profusion. I invite you to immerse yourselves in the alternative universes that our exhibition presents, and I invite you to rejoice in the great work of applied art that is our exhibition. In the next weeks and months, go and feast your eyes on the products of climptifying that made Vienna great. Thank you. Thank you.